Christmas trees in our living room, decorated with popcorn on strings, tinsel ornaments, and huge electric bulbs. I remember thinking of the special Christmas music as I was part of the school Christmas pageants and, and sang about the Christ child. And after that, we got to go to Christmas vacation. I remember presents, gatherings, and churches with nativity scenes. There were certain, certainly pagan elements of the Christmas experience back then, but it wasn't like it is today. While we continue to get farther from the true meaning of Christmas today, our culture has added much more elaborate house decorations, including huge Santa Clauses, snowmen, and white lights that look like icicles all over the neighborhood, and cars with antlers and red noses. And for fear of offending people with Merry Christmas, people say Happy Holidays, if they say anything at all. If you look long and hard, though, you'll still find some nativity scenes with depictions of baby Jesus in the manger, Bethlehem, Mary, Joseph, the animals, the stable, and the shepherds. Many of our Christmas songs focus on baby Jesus, and we are thankful that we have a few reminders left of the reason for the holiday. But here at Sovereign Grace Bible Church, we keep Jesus front and center, not with the nativity scene, but with our worship and our teaching. Last night, Scott read the account of Jesus coming to earth from Luke chapter 2. But today, we're going to hear the brief account of Jesus coming, which the Apostle John gives. In John's account, there is no mention of the baby Jesus, no stable, no manger, no Mary, no Joseph, no shepherds, and no wise men. But the prologue of John's gospel, the first verses, are a treasure of rich theology. With the brevity of words, it reveals the awesomeness of just who Jesus is and what he has come to do. So this sermon today is just a glimpse of the ideas contained in these verses. It's only what I saw as I looked it over the last several days. I know it's just the tip of the iceberg, but I hope as a church we have the opportunity to look deeper into this Gospel of John and especially these first verses in the time ahead of us. So on earth, Jesus was known by the Apostle John more intimately than anyone else. So let's read this tremendous section of scripture, which summarizes the creation of all things, its creator, and the reason for the coming of Jesus as a man on earth. Follow me as I read the first 14 verses of the Gospel of John. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the devil, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as to the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. O oh, Heavenly Father, we ask for your help now as we turn to the Bible together. We thank you that you have preserved the scriptures for us and that you have not only inspired them, but you have maintained them and kept them so that we might read them and we might meet with you as we study them. And this is our hope and our prayer now, beyond the voice of this weak vessel, that we may hear from you, the living God. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look at verse 1 of this section. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is familiar. In the beginning, this is how the whole thing starts. This is how the Bible starts in Genesis 1.1, where it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning refers to before there was anything. Anything. It was before the first second. There was no time. No space. No matter. How is that possible? In 1980, astrophysicist Carl Sagan wrote famously, the cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. But since that time, the collective knowledge of science on the origin of the universe has changed. Over the last 50 years, a vast amount of information has been collected by the comprehensive study of the universe. Scientists have studied the data collected by all of the high-powered radio telescopes that we put into space. Now, most scientists accept a single theory as it seems to best fit the evidence. 
According to this theory, published later in 1980 by physicist Alan Guth, time, the universe, and everything we know to exist started from nothing, absolutely nothing, not one thing, no time, no space, no matter. It had a beginning. So now many scientists see the beginning of everything, much like the Bible explains it. We see it in Genesis 1. God created everything from nothing. But we humans have a handicap thinking about this kind of timeline. It has a time equals zero. But we live temporally, that is, from second to second. And we can't imagine time ever starting. But God doesn't live that way. He is, as we say sometimes, outside of time, whatever that means. But the Genesis account is a little different than the one in John. Genesis says, in the beginning, God. And John says, in the beginning was the Word. John takes until verse 17 to identify the earthly name for the Word, that is, the person Jesus Christ. But John continues in verse 1, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What John is revealing here is two parts of God, the Father and the Son. That the creative part was in the Son. Genesis 1 continues to describe the way God, the Word, created. He just spoke things into existence. First the light, then the space, the heavens, then matter, dry land and waters, then the sun, moon, stars, then living creatures, and finally he made man in his own image. So it wouldn't be wrong at all to say that Jesus created the universe, including everything in it. And how does God make himself known to us? The answer is in the same way which we make ourselves known to one another. Namely, we speak. If a stranger were to stand before you in complete silence, you would have no idea of who he was or what was going on inside of him. But as soon as he begins to speak, you start to know him. The Hebrews passage which Carl read for us earlier describes how God has made himself known. So let's look at it now. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoke to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in these verses we just read, this inspired word in Hebrews, God is essentially saying this, Jesus, 
the Son of God, this Word, is bringing his final word to us. It's like he's saying, if you want to know about me, if you want to understand the nature of me, if you want to meet me, then you will meet me in and through my son. So the word is Jesus, and he made everything, and he was with God, and he is God. And from the other accounts, we know how he appeared on this earth. The manger, Bethlehem, and so forth. But why did he come? As we continue in John 1, he gives us more detail in verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. As you read on in the gospel, you'll find that this same individual stands before people and he says, I am the light of the world. Why would somebody ever be bold enough to say such a thing? Unless, of course, we're dealing here with God. Anytime that someone is enlightened by the truth of God, it is directly related to the light that is in Christ. And you will notice that John says this, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness hasn't overcome it. Think about how old the Gospels are, written some 2,000 years ago. Think about all the history that came before the Gospels, pointing towards the fulfillment in the person of the Messiah. That encompasses another thousand more years. And through all of these years, the light has not gone out. Have you ever thought about why this story is still as important today as it was back then? Why is it not just an item seen in an old history book? The darkness has not overcome it. The skepticism of the world has not been able to eliminate it. The darkness of this skepticism has not destroyed the story. And the darkness of pluralism, which suggests that we should simply accept this story as one of the stories, one of the many stories, has been unable to extinguish the light. Historian Will Durant, who was not a Christian, was famous for his 11-volume work called The Story of Civilization. He summed up the incredible impact of Jesus Christ that Jesus had on the world in this way. After two centuries of higher criticism, the outlines of the life, character, and teaching of Christ remain reasonably clear and constitute the most fascinating feature of the history of Western man. Later in chapter 14 of John is recorded an important exchange between Jesus and the Apostle Philip, describing Jesus' relationship with God the Father. So let's turn to John 14, look at verses 7 to 9. Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, 
you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus says, well, actually, if you've seen me, you've seen God. Just think about that in your mind for a moment. This is a Galilean carpenter who has begun to move amongst the community of his time. He's performing miraculous deeds. He's making this amazing declaration that the kingdom of God is now at hand. And people should repent and believe the good news. And now the message is clear. This person is claiming to be divine. What we have here is an outline of the truth of God, the word and the light which came into earth and shined in the darkness. God has not revealed all of it for sure. That he who is eternally God became flesh. The story of the incarnation is not that God found a suitable recipient in whom to dwell. The doctrine of the incarnation is that God incarnated himself. That distinction is a vital distinction. We see that especially as we talk with people of other religions, such as Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and others who think that Jesus was a created being. So far, John tells us three things in these passages, that Christ is the word in relationship to God. You notice that it opens, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God, and he was in the beginning with God. In other words, his speaking to the fact of his eternality. He is speaking of his divinity as well. And he is making it clear that although the Father and the Spirit and the Son are one in substance, they are unique in personality. And he is both with God and distinct in the person of his sonship. Secondly, he tells us in these verses that he is not only the word in relationship to God, but he is the creator in relationship to the universe. And essentially what we have here is again the Old Testament story. The psalmist says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And John, picking up on that Old Testament reality, says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And now thirdly, he is in a relationship to men and women. We continue reading in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Now into the testimony of John, the writer of this gospel, he brings John the Baptist, the greatest of prophets, who came into the world for one reason, 
And that was that he was sent by God to announce the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the light, the coming of the life, the coming of the living word. That was his task. Verse 7 says, he came as a witness. That's the reason he came. That's the only reason he came. In other words, he came to draw people to him that through his testimony, they might believe in the light, in that light. And John, the apostle, is saying that Jesus is the promised one, proven by the fact that the greatest of all prophets said that he is the one. He testifies that the word has come and is the true light in the world. In verse 7, it says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Another new word. What is believing? It's used a hundred times in John's gospel. It's the essence of everything in a Christian. It means to put faith in him, to account for him, and the gospel as true. To believe means to say yes to the living word and all that he is and all that he has done. And put your trust in him. John the Baptist was not the light. He knew that. He was not the light. He said that in, that in John 3, verses 28 to 29, there we find these words from John the Baptist. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. In other words, he's saying, I'm not part of the wedding. I'm just the one who announces it. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He is the light. That is, Jesus is the light. The Word is the light, who illuminates the space around every man or woman that comes into the world. In some way, the light of Christ is so extensive and so complete and so darkness-scattering that it lights every man and woman to some extent. And so this relates to Romans 1, where it says that everyone has enough knowledge about God to be without excuse. We have so much knowledge of God that we can stand in jeopardy and judgment because of what we have or have not done with the light that we have been given. But Christ is that light that lights every man that enters the world. He lights some enough so that they can see the truth and be saved. He lights others to judgment, revealing their evil as they remain unrepentant. But he is the light. He is the only light that will ever light a heart. He is the light that in some way lights every man. God has revealed enough of himself to every person to hold them accountable. And he is a light either to light 
or judgment and light to salvation. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Here we see he came into a dark world with the light of truth. He came to light every man that came into the world, and the world received him not. This is heartbreaking. He was in the world. That's what we saw in verses 4 and 5. He was light in the darkness, life coming to the world of men. The world was made by him, and we saw that in verse 3. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And the world knew him not. The darkness remained. The darkness, and it tried to even put out the light. And when it says the world knew him not, it doesn't mean that they didn't know who he was. They did. It means that they didn't have the intimate, personal relationship with him, which he desired and desires of each of us. It says he came into his own. His own what? His own everything. Everything that was made by him, right? Verse 3. So he came into everything that was. His everything. He, his own received him not. In this passage, it seems like his own may have meant Israel, but Israel may only be like a symbol for everyone who rejects him. Verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now notice that those who did receive him and who do receive him and believe in his name are described as those who are the children of God. And he uses one Greek verb to tie both of these mysteries together. And you'll find it in verse 12. It is translated to become. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The root word there is the same word that he uses for verse 14, and the word became flesh. We'll see in a moment. It's the same root word. What he's pointing out is the reason for the coming of Jesus in the flesh is that in order that those of us who are the sons of men, who live in the realm of the flesh, might become sons of God. In other words, what he's dealing with in theological terminology is the doctrine of incarnation and the doctrine of regeneration and how incarnation and regeneration fit together. Now we go to verse 13. Who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. You'll notice that those who were born in the end of verse 13 were not born of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but were born of God. In other words, he's saying those who were spiritually born, not born of phys in physical terms, 
but reborn. That's what regeneration means, regeneration, reborn, recreated, remade. In the Bible, there is an exchange between Jesus and a man named Nicodemus, which best illustrates this rebirth. If you remember, Nicodemus has come as a religious leader to Jesus. He obviously has some questions and comments for Jesus. So let's turn over a page or two to the right and look at John 3, where we see this exchange in verses 1 through 3. John 3, 1 to 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. This is a real problem. Men and women cannot enter God's kingdom by faith in Jesus or see God's kingdom that is understand it unless they have been born of God. That's what Jesus says to Nicodemus. He's a sinner. He's a sophisticated sinner. He's a spiritual sinner. And unless he is born again, he can neither see the kingdom of God, which Jesus has just come to proclaim, nor can he enter this kingdom, which is embodied in Jesus himself. Now we get to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh, which implies first that he was not flesh. He was spirit before the creation of the world that he had made. And then he enters into it and becomes flesh. That is, he becomes a man. Goes on, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Now that is the first time this word Son is used in John's Gospel, and it's going to be used 60 more times, because Son of God is one of the most important phrases in the Bible, and in this Gospel especially. So the Son of God is not the product of conception with Mary. He was there before Mary ever existed, and he is divine, and he is not the product of creation because he was not made. And the point we're at now of saying is that he's the son, is that he, is that the, the father always had a perfect image of himself with him. He always had one to relate to, and he stands forth as this image of the image of God, as a distinct person, though, who is with God and is God. Let's look at the use of the word flesh in another verse. A couple more pages to the right in John 6. In verse 51 of John 6, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, 
If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so giving his life is the point of having flesh. He became flesh so that he could die for us. And Jesus will always be man. He doesn't leave behind his body. If we go to chapter 2, in verse 19 to 21 of John, it says, <coughs> Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. He is going to raise up his body. He is not going to leave it in the grave. He is always going to have a body. And Paul makes it plain here in Philippians 3.20. There it says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Jesus today has a glorious body, and he's coming back. And our earthly bodies, these worn-out, virus-ridden, cancer-infested, dying bodies are going to be raised and conformed to his glorious body. Forever, Jesus is going to be a God-man. He has taken humanity into the very deity. Magnificent truth. We see also in verse 14 the words, He dwelt among us. The word used to describe this here is the Greek word for pitch a tent. That could have meant that He only intended to be with us for a brief time, since pitching a tent is somewhat temporary. But we also notice the same word for pitch a tent is used in the book of Revelation for the final permanent dwelling of God among us. When we'll be, he'll be with us forever and ever. So that word John used is meant to mean that he will be near to us. It means he got near to us. It's to have access to us. It's nearness. And that's the point of Christmas. That's why we sing Emmanuel, which means God with us. So Christmas is one, God the Word, to becoming a man so that he might die and to be near his people. And there's more, another two more things I want us to see. We have seen his glory as of the only Son from the Father, because it's the Word who was the Son. And the Word we saw in verses 1 through 3 was with God in the beginning, and the Word was God. Notice this. The Son did not come into being at the Incarnation. The Son has been there from the beginning and was with God as long as there has been God, which is forever. And he has been God and was with God, the Father, and he has had a perfect image of himself, who is himself, 
standing forth as a distinct person with God, and yet is very God. And that Son becomes flesh and dwells among us, and now we see that his Son has glory, and we have seen the glory, and the glory of the Son is the glory of the Word, who is the glory of God. We have seen his glory, his glory as of the Son from the Father, and the Son is the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word is God, and therefore we have seen God's glory. This is staggering. If you have seen Jesus, you have seen God's glory. And some theologians, trying to define the term glory, call this his transcendent beauty, or transcendent radiance, or his divine transcendent beauty. If you behold Jesus, you see divine transcendent beauty, or the radiance of God. But you might ask, but we weren't there to see him. So how can we see that glory in Jesus? And you might think that we are at a disadvantage today in the year 2022. But let me point out to you two passages of Scripture which may help. Here's Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Who is the God of this world? That's Satan. That's the devil. What does Paul mean by the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ? That's the glory of the Son. The glory of the words, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the Word. And it's called the light of the gospel of the glory. So here's the point. Here is that in the gospel that is in the narrated events of the doings of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the words of Jesus, the narrated event called the gospel. In all of that, you see glory. You don't have to be there in order to see it. In John 17, Jesus prays what we call the high priestly prayer, where he specifically prays for his people. In verse 20, he says these words to his Father, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, who will believe in me. In other words, I do not pray for these only who see me, these men who are with me now, who are the eyewitnesses, but also for the ones at Sovereign Grace Bible Church on Christmas Day in 2022, this one who is teaching and everyone hearing him now. I'm praying for them now, Jesus is saying, 2,000 years before they exist. I'm praying for them who will believe in me through the word. It's through the word that we see the glory of God. Jesus inspired John to write this letter in order that by the gospel of the letter and in the words of the gospel, we might see the glory of God. In fact, I would argue, and I hope that you would agree with me, that we are not at a disadvantage now 
compared to the eyewitnesses, I think we have an advantage. Who are among those eyewitnesses? Judas was among those eyewitnesses. The Pharisees were among them. The crowds crying, crucify him, crucify him. They had all seen him. Judas saw him do almost everything he did. And he didn't see any glory. He was not compelled by anything he witnessed. The Pharisees saw him do miracles, and yet they wanted to kill him. The crowd saw him, and they wanted to crucify him. There was no advantage being there. We actually have an advantage because we see the whole story. We see the whole gospel laid out for us in an inspired book, which is vastly more full, more beautiful, and rich, if it could be anything. But I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus said, it's better if I go away than if I stay. So we don't have any advantage, or disadvantage, that is, in seeing the glory of God today. All we have to do is read the Gospel of John. And we can throw in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Romans, and First and Second Corinthians, and all the other inspired books where the glory of God is revealed in such amazing fullness. And when we see that glory, what do we see? We see that it's full of grace and truth. We see reality. And if you want to know what's true about everything, about anything, bring it into the light of the glory of God, and you will see it for what it really is. Everything about science, or biology, or art, or history, or philosophy, or psychology, or anything else in the world is not truly known until it's seen in connection and in the light of the glory of God. And wonder of wonders, within this reality, God's heart is gracious towards us. In the early centuries of the church, they had to come to terms with this. They had to figure out, what does this all mean? What is John talking about here? How does it all work? How do we say this properly? The Council of Nicaea gave to us the Nicene Creed. This was the result of all of their wrestling and wrangling with these passages. My family, when I was growing up, went to a Lutheran church. They used this creed as part of the liturgy, so I learned it as a boy. I don't think I saw much meaning in it then, but I sure do now. These early churches saw what the text was indicating and made a creed or a doctrine to recite, to make sure that they all understood. I want to read that, or at least part of it, to you this morning. It begins, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of what substance with the Father, 
by whom all things were made. And then the creed moves from the description to the wonders of it all, that is, in the incarnation, to explain the reason for the incarnation. And the creed at once continues, by whom all things were made, who for us men, men and women, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. For those of you who were with us last night, we sang, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, written by Charles Wesley. I had to memorize this song to sing in Christmas pageants when I was, in the, was, I was a youth. But I didn't know then what rich theology was in this song. In this song, we see the reality of who we are, who Jesus is, and what he has come to do. I'm going to read a couple of verses here. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies. With angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, Hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays the glory by, born that we may no more die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. And I suppose for those of us who feel at Christmas time or any other time of the year that we are sinful and guilty before God. The greatest gift is to know that he came to shine his light into the world and reveal the glory. That glory is the truth of all things. And at the heart of that truth is a gracious disposition of our Maker toward us who know him as Lord. This is the best news in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible reality that before the world began, you were there with your son, that you planned it all, the creation of everything, including us, and that you knew we would need this rescue, that you would have to come in the flesh and be close to us, to light the way for each of us, to save us from our sinful selves, 
and the punishment our sins deserve. We thank you for this lesson today. Help us to see Jesus for who he is. And for those here who do not yet know him, that they may be moved to receive him as their Lord and God and treasure him. And for those of us who have already received him, I pray that we will draw closer to him and cherish him more and enjoy him more and follow him and display him in our lives and to the lives of others more than we ever have on this Christmas day and the rest of the time you've given us in these bodies. For it is in his name we pray.